0: Well, good morning again. If you have your Bible, 1 Corinthians chapter 6 is where I would invite you to turn to 1 Corinthians 6, page 809 in the church Bibles. In just a moment, we're going to begin reading in verse 9. And while you're turning there, just let me say a couple of things. One... um, as you probably know, when we're through, if you have any question about what was said, sung, or read this morning, or about Christ, I'd be happy to try to answer those questions for you. And the second thing is, these next three sermons might be, uh, not, by, not by dent of topic, but by just by dent of principle, it might be the most important three sermons we've heard in a long time. Because this talk today, I think, hope, fundamentally, is going to help us to, to really be able to understanding, understand our Bibles in a way that makes sense. And a culture that um, uh, sometimes, uh, and Christian culture, that sometimes confuses um, the topics that we're going to talk through the next three are uh, four Sundays, depending on how, how things go. So just keep that in mind, and maybe even keep that in your prayers as you're thinking about me through the week, and many of you tell me that you pray for me, and I so desperately need it and, and greatly appreciate it, but just keep that in mind as we work through this. So beginning in verse 9, we're just going to read the first uh, three or the next three verses after verse 9, and actually we won't even be able to work through all these verses that we will read this morning, and I think... We'll figure that out as time goes along. Verse 9, do you not know, so this is the third time Paul said this in verse 6 or chapter 6, do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor adulterers, nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes, nor homosexual offenders, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were, that you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Amen. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Let's bow, please, as we prepare this morning. Our God and Father, we, we have worshiped you, seeking to give you the praise, praise that is due your great and mighty name. And we now come to this sacred moment when you'll speak to us through your word, the Bible, that through the lips of the ordinary, you will bring that which is extraordinary, so that we might be able to be changed. This God, this whole thing is a great mystery and, and anything of lasting value which is offered up in these moments, they have to be your work. So please help us to bow our hearts now and help us to pay attention. Help us to understand this This moment matters. It's, it's the highest moment of the week that we've been given. And help me to speak so that we would hear your voice and your voice alone. For Jesus' sake, we ask these things. Amen. So the longer I continue on in pastoral ministry, the longer I continue on in the work of simply um, preaching and teaching from the scriptures, uh, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book, uh, the more I'm absolutely committed to this approach. This is an approach that helps the body of Christ be built up correctly, people reaching um, true maturity so they can be involved in genuine ministry. So in these settings that we've been given, we would not ever pass over things when we work through the Bible. At the same time, we won't be preoccupied, which which may simply expose either our biases or our kind of preconceptions about things as they go on in the world. Because surely in in chapter 6, one would have to be very sure of themselves if they attempted to just parachute down in these verses and took out maybe one line or specifically one phrase a la uh, homosexual stuff and decide from pre- to preach from it all the while ignoring all that became before those verses and all that will come after those verses so that we can actually understand those verses. And so surely it goes without saying that that is what frequently happens, specifically when, when the issue of the sin of homosexuality is addressed. Therein, and God's, uh, people use God's word or they go to God's word to support their own particular line of thinking instead of going to God's word to test and examine and then establish our lines of thinking. And, and loved ones, there is a massive difference in that. Let me give you some examples. When a pastor recently spewed out in, of all places, Arizona, and there's a lot more like him, behind his pulpit, he said that all homosexuals should be rounded up and locked up and put down, because that's the way they did it in the Old Testament, okay? Or when a pastor in Southern California said he believed that um, homosexuality and, and fornication... And by the way, we'll learn this next week, but fornication is sexual sin outside the context of marriage. That, that no, they are no longer a sin, those things. And so what he was doing was redefining God's moral absolutes Or when the issue is spoken on in a way. These issues that exceed the attention or the judgments or the arrangements which are given in the scriptures then all that person has done is simply season those texts to their own either personal taste or their own political taste or whatever the case may be. And I want you to keep in mind, and I'm going to say this quite a few times during our talk, that these verses that Paul is writing to the Corinthian church is making the church turn its gaze on itself. In other words, the church is to examine itself in these verses in relation to all those things. So that means our eyes are to be on ourselves in these verses because, and you can see this in verse 9, our understanding of our individual entry into God's kingdom is at stake here. And I want you to keep in mind, we've already been told not to judge those outside the church. That's 1 Corinthians five twelve and 13a, which tells us that the only one qualified, authorized to make judgments on the world is God. So even while we may reject homosexual practices, we have no liberty at all to dehumanize them. No backroom talk. You think, I think you know what I mean. We have no liberty to criminalize them. The Bible affirms that these people are human beings made in God's image. And listen, if you follow that line, if you're ready to dehumanize or criminalize them, that when you're going to have to do, if you're going to be truthful to the text is you're going to have to take slander and greed and all those other sins there, and you better be prepared to go down that line. So, each of us, because of original sin, are at risk of, in matters of human sexuality. And nobody has been sexually pure in the totality of their life apart from Jesus Christ. We have the right to make judgments, we do not have the right to be judgmental and no one human stands morally superior to another which is why when we go to the world we go leading with the proclamation of the good news. That's what we go to. So so our priority is not legislation. Our priority is proclamation. So if you would we go with the Bible in our hands a savior in our hearts. We don't go with clenched fist, and we certainly don't go with handcuffs. And that is why you can't parachute into this text, take out the stuff, or talk about the stuff that really gets you fired up, or gets the base really fired up, thereby you slaughter the very meaning, and you slaughter God's very intent in order to simply throw out your wrong judgments on, quote, and you'll forgive me, those queers. What is that? What is that? That is not Jesus Christ. Recently, I began reading this book, Walter, it's Walter Isaacson's um, The Innovators, that's what it is, how a group of hackers, genius, and geeks uh, created the digital revolution. In chapter two, Isaacson tells a story of a man named Alan Turing. And he worked for the British military government code and cypher school. Um, If you've seen the movie The Imitation Game, which I have, you'll know what I'm talking about. This man was the chief designer and the genius behind this uh, certain type of computer machine that was able to break the secret codes of the German Enigma machine. And that machine set out secret codes to the German field commanders and naval officers and so on. And nobody really thought that his machine was going to work. In fact, he almost got dismissed Fired from his work. There's a historian. His name is Asa Briggs. He says you needed exceptional talent. You needed genius to break those codes. And Turing was that genius. And so in 1945, he was awarded the British Empire Award. The the OBE. And it's the highest award that anyone in the military or civilian life could could get in the British Kingdom. And he was awarded that gift because of his wartime services. He was credited to have saved over 1,400 million soldiers and civilians in the Allied forces. 14 million lives saved because of Turing's invention. And you should know that Alan Turing was a closet homosexual. Now listen, if you saw him and your child was one of those 14 million lives which which were saved... And again, you'll forgive me. Would you call him a queer? Would you wish him gone? Would you, do you, would you wonder why he isn't locked up? Or would you wish him dead? Or would you shake his hand and say thank you? And if you're a Christian, would you invite him over for a meal? Tell him about the great wonder of God's love in Jesus for him. I know what I would do. In fact, if your Bible's open, you can look at 1 Corinthians 5, 9, and 10. That tells us exactly what to do. And so I've been wondering what Mr. Turing would, would have enjoyed eating at the friend's own home. And listen, and I understand that there might be dreadfully deviant homosexuals just as long as we all should understand that there are equally dreadfully deviant heterosexuals. But here's the point. When we take the place of God in anything, and particularly spewing out judgments on the world, or treating the scripture like our personal uh, hand puppet, making it say what we want it to say, not only do we make a bloody mess of things, and not only do we give a confusing picture of the world, but we do a disservice to the world. And we step over our limits, and yes, we do. We break the first, the second, and the third commandment, and we break it to pieces. Here's the point. Ignore the context of chapter 6. And you'll muddle the whole truth that chapter 6 is trying to convey. So those of you who, who come here week by week, you know that we're not targeting cer- certain areas this morning. What we're trying to do is what we've been doing for a long time now. We open up the book, verse by verse, chapter by chapter. We let, we let the God who wrote them order the words, and he orders our study. So keeping all that in mind, we have a first point, And the first point is this. Principle and not prejudice. That's number one. Principle and not prejudice. Now, I've been saying that Paul wants the Corinthian church's gaze in relation to all these sins to be on herself. And again, not one particular sin, but all those sins. So if we sit back and then feel like we are okay because we don't struggle the least bit with homosexuality, then here's the warning. Don't be prejudiced. Don't be prejudiced, but be principled. And here's here's why, and here's the question. If we in our minds, or do we in our minds, in our speaking, do we single out homosexuality as if it was the sole threat, the sole benchmark of ungodliness, the worst of the worst sins, and do we demonize it then as the worst of the worst? Because in your New Testament, and you'll need to check this out for yourself, in your New Testament, in order to uh, avoid that wrong line of thinking, The warnings about its wrongness, homosexuality's wrongness, always comes in a list with other sins. Okay? It always comes in a list with other sins. Homosexuality, as always, comes in a list with sins like adultery, or people who sleep around, slanderers, the greedy, people who are jealous of others, people's possessions and place in life, uh, the miserly, the swindler, people who steal, drunkards. And principle, as opposed to prejudice, treats that list evenly. Because God gave it that way, and God does it that way himself. And we can't miss this. Sin is sin. It's all wretched. It's all horrible. And if you say, because of our context here, if you say, well, isn't homosexuality destroying our culture? You know, the guy and the girl on the radio, they they said it was. Well, this would be my response to that. I don't know. There are many things that could destroy a culture. Original sin helps me know that that there is no earthly culture that is going to be perpetual. And homosexuality has been around forever. Its existence makes money because those ministries do exactly what 1 Corinthians 5 and 12 say not to do. And people pay no attention to that. And every culture is in God's hand. And God is incredibly merciful and powerful and long-suffering. And he wants to save people. And he was willing to keep Sodom and Gomorrah around if there was only how many righteous people? Ten. Ten righteous people. And by the way, according to Ezekiel chapter 16, verses 49 and 50, uh, uh, homosexuality and deviant sexual behavior was not the only reason why God took that culture down. Let me read it to you. This was the iniquity of your sister Sodom. Pride, fullness of bread, and abundance of idleness. Uh, the The word is acedia, which means people have a whole lot of time and a whole lot of stuff, and they're doing nothing of any significance. It was in her daughters. Neither did she strengthen the hand of the poor and the needy, and they were haughty. And they committed abomination before me, therefore I took them away as I saw good and staying on that line uh, we do not have the insight of the old testament prophets to fully say definitively why god brings down one empire and he raises up another empire but let me go on just a little bit if you caught me in a rambunctious mood i would say that there are many other things that might destroy a culture and many people, much wiser than me, have said them. Let me give you some examples. Alistair Begg on playing fast and loose with the fourth commandment and public worship on the Lord's Day. Christian people living as if, as if the, the worship of the one in heaven didn't really matter. That can destroy a culture. John Piper on the way some Christian retired who have been given all that time and all those resources spend it away on things that are passing away. Or what about Charles Spurgeon from the 19th century? This is his quote. What God calls covetousness and greed, worldly churchmen call prudence, discretion, and economy. Or what about the Christian's inability or lack of compassion to consistently engage the world with the message of the cross? Or perhaps those who go around writing blogs about how they refuse to see Fifty Shades of Grey Okay, maybe they should spend, I don't know, maybe 50 minutes in prayer instead. Because the latter might do more for the culture than the former. So if you're still with me, the look here in this text is at the church. The church is looking at itself. The church is talking to itself. That's our first point. Prejudice, no. Principle, yes. God gives sins in lists so that we can avoid being prejudiced and be principled. God gives sins in lists in order that we may not forget that the righteousness we need to be right with God actually comes from God. That's Romans 10.3, right? In order that we will not seek to establish our own righteousness, I'm not gay, so I must be good. In order that we won't do that, we must submit to God's righteousness. And God's righteousness is faith in Christ faith in Christ alone okay that takes us to our second point number two wicked don't inherit that's verse nine do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God now here's the thing if you go to that text with just kind of a wooden look then it gives you this sense of holy cow if I do these things then I'm a goner I mean if you're going to be honest right You want to pretend, you can pretend that you don't do any of these things, then, you know, you play that fantasy game. But no, if you go to the text and you just look at it as it is, then you would be, okay, I'm done. But that's why we need the whole Bible to make a whole Christian. In chapter 5, we learned that the church was turning a blind eye to adulterous relationships in the church. Now, chapter 6, we learned that the church in Corinth was was beginning to play fast and loose with those list of sins in verses 9 and 10. And Paul writes to them to remind them that these people who have professed faith in Jesus Christ are obligated to continuously, if you would, remove yourself from that framework. Remove those things in your life that marked your pre-Christian life. Now, the first thing you need to know in this, he is not personally questioning their salvation. Okay, he had written to them in chapter 1, verse 2, as those sanctified in Christ. Chapter 1, verse 10, verse 11, verse 26, chapter 2, verse 1, chapter 3, verse 1, chapter 4, verse 6. He writes to them as brothers. In other words, I'm writing to you as members of the family of God. So he's not personally questioning their salvation. He won't do that. Nobody can do that. The only person that can do that is the individual. So there is is a self-examination here, and that's it. So then Paul's concern is then the inappropriateness of those who have been called by God to live a holy life, living unholy lives. And that's the main point of these verses. That's what Paul is saying. A new life in Christ will work work itself out in a new lifestyle, which is submitting to Christ. And to be sure, where there is no new lifestyle, then one could question justifiably whether there is actually new life at all. And that's that's why I gave it the title, New Life Given, New Life Lived. It's a certainty. We should all take encouragement in that. And again, remember, 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 God alone is the final judge of a person's experience of salvation. That's why we can't judge the world. But God's word, the Bible, is the authority which describes that salvation and describes its fruits. And the Corinthian church then had lost sight of these things. They had lost sight of Christ's call for his children to be holy. They lost sight of the fact that they they were to live lives exclusively uh, devoted to Jesus Christ. They forgot the price that God paid. And again, what's true of them is true of us. Our lives do not belong to us anymore. And therefore, to act like it does forgets the price that Christ paid to redeem us. Now here's the thing, so we won't try to define holy living in our own terms, right? So cultural terms or personal biases, we need to look at that word wicked in verse 9. In fact, we have a little sub-point here. Main point, uh, wicked do not inherit the kingdom of God. Some point, who are the wicked? Well, the word that Paul chose to use there is, is a technical term, and, and I apologize for the, the exactness of this sermon, but it needs to happen. Okay? It's a technical term. It's a compound word in the Greek, and it means not just. In other words, behaving unjustly. And what this means is, since all sin is committed ultimately against God, the wicked are treating God with injustice. They are denying him in their disobedience the very right he has for our obedience as almighty God. Now, if you're tracking with me, this is especially helpful for those of us who just, you know, giggle when we sin instead of crying when we sin. This specific word means that there has been a defiant breach of God's law, his moral law. And in this violation of God's good standard, there is an injustice that is directed towards God alone. An injustice directed towards God in which the wicked are treating God as if they couldn't give a rip about him or his glory, his authority, or his power, or his son. And so this is the definition of wickedness. Any thought or word or deed which does not treasure God over everything and that does not prefer God and his ways over everything, thereby treating God unjustly. Okay. There is no way that God deserves to be treated like that. And if we do that, then it's wicked. So part of wickedness is when the glory of God is not honored or it is demoted. We choose other things over God in his way. And that's why this word, which could easily be translated injustice, was chosen by Paul. Because all sin is an injustice directed towards God. So ask yourself this question, why is it sometimes as humans we, fo- we feel more outraged about humanity's injustice towards humanity, uh, poverty, hatred, war, but not when God is ignored, not when God is treated unjustly in humanity's defiance against his moral standards. So the question, who are the wicked, is answered. The wicked are those who defiantly and willfully and unrepentantly live by their own laws Listen, their own code, so the moral law of God and how Jesus defined those commandments, they're just hurled because they don't matter to the wicked. And just, this is not in the notes, but the wicked could be someone who says, yes, I know Christ, and yes, I know God, but they live a life within their own subjective framework about who God is and who Christ is and what it means to be saved uh, by his death. So then by rights, then no savior, as the Bible describes, is really needed. Okay, now if you're still still with me, in order that we would avoid any sense of perfectionism here, because it could easily happen in these verses, every well-taught Christian knows that the doctrine of original sin means a lifelong battle with indwelling sin is going to be expected, and we will lose sometimes, and we will win sometimes. And when we lose, it shouldn't be a real shock to us. And when others lose, it shouldn't be a real shock to us because it's not a shock to God. But here's the deal. One of the signs of new life is that we are learning to put up a fight so that those sins in verse 9b and 10, they may mark us from time to time, including homosexuality. They may mark us from time to time, but they do not define us. They do not control us. It's not our new way of life. And we do cry out for righteousness and we do cry out for forgiveness because we know that those kinds of behavior listed in those verses are wicked and the wicked do not inherit the kingdom of God. So, loved ones, the fight we put up against indwelling sin are the signs of the new life, if you would, within. New life given, new life lived. Romans eight thirteen and 14, which is probably one of the most misinterpreted texts in the New Testament. It says this, For if we live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. And oftentimes that last little phrase, led by the Spirit of God, is kind of turned to mean, okay, God will help me make right choices with jobs and with girls or with guys and who should I marry and all that kind of stuff. Listen, I understand that, but the context there is God's moral law. So this is a moral dictate. This is about our moral behavior. And the point is this, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. That's the point. And so the child of God looks at verse 9 and says, God, thank you for warning me. Thank you that you want me to fight these things. Thank you that you want me to get it right. So you give me this beautiful list to help me in that direction. But the, un, uh, the religious, unregenerate person looks at verse 9 and says, I'm fine. I don't need the warning. What's the big deal? I have my own moral code. I can do what I lo- like. I prayed and it's okay. And that takes us to our second subpoint. Okay, who are the wicked? Uh, those who treat God unjustly. Second subpoint, okay, what is the kingdom of God? What is it that the wicked will not inherit? Well, this is what they will not inherit. The kingdom of God is the visible and invisible rule and reign of Christ. That's the kingdom of God. In essence, the church, in a very real sense, is the kingdom of God. And our entry into the kingdom of God begins then with an act of God. See, that's why you have to understand this. This is what Jesus said in John chapter 3. I tell you the truth, unless you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless you're born again. Okay, that's implied a new birth, right? A new birth, a dramatic change. Well, well who does that? John 1, 13. children born of God. So God is, if you would, the giver of new birth. So think of it this way. You and I had no control over our physical birth, did we? We didn't. It's much the same way in our new birth. A new birth which God started and then God makes this dramatic change unless there's no new birth. And the church is one of the places where that change is manifested. The church is naturally where born-again or birthers go And they receive God's care and protection, and then they begin to slowly reflect all the mannerisms and the morality of the kingdom of God. Right? Your kingdom come, your will be done. That's why the church is at the very center of God's plan. Not a parachurch, not ministry organizations. No, the church is at the center of God's plan. And so we root out our sin, and we obey our king and we freely forgive, and we freely give, and we serve Jesus Christ. How come? Because we're part of the kingdom. That's what kingdom people do. And until we know ourselves dead in sin, and so sinful needing to be saved, our need for this Christ and his objective rule, until we know that, we'll never be in the kingdom Some of you know that my father was in the hotel business for quite a while. And one of the lovely things my dad always did in the summertime is he let me go everywhere with him. And so I would go from hotel to hotel to hotel. And it was pretty simple. He'd say, Joe, you can go into the restaurant and order whatever you like. And you can go in this pool area and you can swim and do what you like. And you can go all around the hotel and and do what you like. But just remember one thing. You're a friend zone and you represent me. So Joe, Be good. It's the same here. Be good. Be good for Christ's sake. Be good for glory's sake. His glories. And that takes us then to our, our final point. Do not be deceived. Okay, number one, principle not prejudice. Sins comes in list. All of it's horrible. Number two, wicked don't inherit the kingdom of God because, because they won't be ruled by the kingdom, the king of the Kingdom. Being saved by grace does not mean you can do what you like. That We tried that before. That's what put us under. Finally, don't be deceived. Deceived from what? Well, look at your Bibles there at verses 9 and 10. Well, you see it there. Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor, nor adulterers, nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes, nor homosexual offenders, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers <laughs> will enter the kingdom of God. So Paul says, don't forget that the wicked, this kind of person, will not enter the kingdom of God. Okay, why not? Well, because it's a righteous kingdom, and God is righteous, and it's his kingdom. Don't forget that. It is his kingdom, and he will not have a kingdom filled with unrighteous people. Therefore, the wicked, those unrighteous, choose this behavior, and as a result of their choices, they exclude themselves. Therefore, those who deny God's rule and reign will not be part of the kingdom. So this is the logic, okay? God is a kingdom. It is his kingdom. It is a righteous kingdom. If you want to be unrighteous, then you won't be in the kingdom. If you want to rule yourself and live in that wicked way, wanting, uh, wanting him to have no influence over you, you will be excluded from the kingdom. This is, Paul says the same thing, Ephesians 5. For this you can be sure. No, immoral, impure, or greedy person, such a person is an adulterer, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. In other words, don't let anyone tell you differently. Now, if the Christian looks at that list, verses 9 and 10, this is the Christian, and they find themselves guilty, okay, I have been greedy, I have been immoral, I've done things I shouldn't have done, this is what you need to know. Paul is not referring here to a a non-repentive, isolated act of unrighteousness. No one redeemed in Jesus Christ will live a sinless life. I mean, we should know that. What he's referring to, and this is why I told you in the beginning, this is the church taking a look at itself. What he's referring to is someone in the church who pursues a consistently wicked life, the kind of life that says, I want nothing to do with God, yet at the same time, I want to enjoy all the benefits of the kingdom. In other words, the lifestyle, if you would, of an illegal alien, okay? That's why, again, I told you, the church's gaze in these verses are at itself, not to the world, in itself, the illegal alien who dwells where they shouldn't be, they don't hold a passport, they are fakers, they want the benefit of the life in the kingdom, but they do not want to genuinely belong to the kingdom. And I hope you understand this. They're in the church, but not as a citizen, but as an illegal alien, so Paul says to the church, those of you who, who think that you, uh, because you, are, you, you attend regularly, if you would, you are automatically in, that you're somehow absorbed into the kingdom. He tells them, so he tells us, don't be deceived. Don't be deceived. The wicked will not inherit the kingdom. They won't. Two quotes from two men and then we're just about done. John Owen. Every sermon I preach, I smell hell. Because we must persevere or we will perish. John Piper. I don't, I don't think indwelling sin really matters are the words of a potential non-believer. And here's the thing. The key to our assurance in our salvation is not to lower the standard. It is not to misrepresent the standard, but rather magnify God's grace in the standard as a power to pardon when we blow it and as a power to help us get it right so that Christ, as he should be, will be exalted in all things. Now we have more to say I understand this was, was probably hard to listen to, just the dynamic of it and all that kind of stuff. But Lord William will be back here next week to finish these verses out. Thank you for your attention. Let's pray together. Well, our gracious God and Father, we thank you that you have so much compassion on this fallen world, and that you give the clarity that we need by way of standard. You give us the savior that we most definitely need and by way of your son. And you are honest about human nature. And you're honest about pretenders. And you don't seek to embarrass them, God. You just ex- seek to expose them privately. So they would turn their heart and life to you, the risen God, and to your son, Jesus Christ. To receive a genuine faith. And not an imitation faith. So in light of all that we've said today, if any of us here are struggling with that imitation part I pray for them right now I pray that your mighty grace would abound that they'd be given a genuine new birth and therefore be able to live for you in these days and walk in a way worthy of the children of the kingdom of God please help us in all these things we pray for Jesus sake amen